0: This morning, we will be looking at Psalm 32. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up there. If you don't have a Bible, we should have a couple members of our strike team coming down the aisles who can give you one. These Bibles are yours to keep if you do not have a Bible at home. Please, if you don't have a Bible, take one with you. It is our gift. Now, Psalm 32 is a popular psalm a lot of people are familiar with at least part of it, likely the first two verses, because they are quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4. Fun fact for you all today, St. Augustine considered this to be his favorite psalm, and when he was dying, he asked that this psalm be written on the wall of his room so that he could meditate on it in the final days of his life. Of all the passages in the entire Bible, this is the one he wanted closest to him as he left this life for the next. If one of the greatest minds in church history thought this highly of Psalm 32, then it is surely worth our attention as well. The big point I want to make this morning, I've decided to take directly from the first line of the psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, this is an amazing truth, and I hope by the end of my message, it will be even more amazing to us. I pray that we would never lose the joy, the glory, and the wonder of being forgiven, and that we know how truly blessed we are. So, with that, let's read our passage. Psalm 32, a maskill of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule. Without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, as I already mentioned, the big point from this psalm is blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The first two verses basically make this point in redundancy. These verses kind of act like a summary point that David is trying to make with the entire psalm. Do you remember in school how you were supposed to put a clear thesis statement In the opening paragraph of a paper? At least that's what I was told. Well, these first two verses are like David's opening paragraph, and his thesis is clear. It is really great to be forgiven. And here are my three points that I'm getting from the body of David's paper. Number one, guilt feels terrible. Number two, Confession brings forgiveness. And number three, forgiveness brings blessing. So let's start with point number one. Guilt feels terrible. Look with me again at verses three and four. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. All right, this section begins with David saying, for when I kept silent. What does that mean? Well, if we look forward to verse five, we see that keeping silent is contrasted with David acknowledging his sin to God. So David he isn't just saying he's going to stop talking. It's not like he's giving the silent treatment to everybody he lives with, but rather that he kept silent by not confessing his sin to God. Instead of confessing, he was holding on to his sin. He didn't want to give it up because confession, well, confession means that you regret what you did and therefore, Confession must go hand in hand with repentance. See, it's easy to confess with the mouth, but it's not so easy to confess with the heart. That's what David was fighting against. He kept silent because deep inside his heart, he still wasn't ready to let go of that sin. And do you know what that is called? It's called pride. It's holding on to our own desires above what we know is right. We see this sort of thing in human relationships all the time. For example, let's say there was a man named Bob. And in a moment of frustration, Bob said a really harsh comment to his wife. It was hurtful. He knows that what he did was wrong. He may even feel guilty about it. And he certainly knows that his relationship with his wife is now suffering because of it. But because of his pride, Bob won't confess. He may think to himself, Man, it would be really embarrassing to admit what I did was wrong. That would make me look like a fool, and it would make her look like the good guy. And why would I want to provide her another opportunity to punish me, more than I already feel already? It really wasn't that bad what I said. Maybe she needed to hear it. So Bob remains silent. And he and his wife go on living in an awkward tension, hoping that someday they'll just naturally get over it somehow. If this is what pride and keeping silent can do to our human relationships, how much worse our relationship with God Almighty. See, guilt has a cost. We see in this passage that David, he was in agony when he remained in his stubbornness. It says his bones wasted away. I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but it doesn't really matter. It sounds awful. He groaned all day long. Day and night, he felt the heavy hand of God upon him. Now that is an image of guilt. The hand of God heavy upon you. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that deep, Heaviness in your soul, gnawing at your heart, telling you that you are guilty? It's not a fun place to be. And this verse, it tells us that this feeling may not just be a feeling, it's from God. The heaviness of the guilt in our hearts may indeed be God's active, righteous discipline pressing us toward repentance. David goes on to say his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I think we can all understand the simile here. When it's hot and muggy and gross outside, it zaps your energy completely, making even a short walk seem exhausting. You don't really want to do anything except find a shady spot to take a nap in. It's kind of like what guilt can do to us. It zaps our energy. It paralyzes people. It makes even basic tasks feel like a chore. Guilt is a very powerful emotion. It feels terrible. It's a prison. And it holds us as slaves. I bet some of you suffer from guilt. Some of you relate to what I've just described and you're tired of it. You're exhausted and feel beaten down. You feel the slavery that is your guilt and you want to be free. If that is you, we'll have a few assessment questions that I'd like you to ask yourself. First, what are you feeling guilty about? Now, this is important. It is important to identify the cause of what you are feeling. For there have been times in my life, many times actually, where I simply feel guilty and I'm not sure why. In these times, it's good to not ignore the emotion. Don't distract yourself from feeling it, but rather meditate on it. Take some time to determine what exactly are you feeling guilty about. This may take some time and perhaps a trusted person to talk through. Try to get to the source of what you think you should either be doing or not be doing. For me, the most frequent reason I feel guilty is that I think that I'm simply not doing enough. I feel guilty that I'm wasting my time. That I'm not fully using my life for God's glory. Is that accurate? Is this something I should feel guilty about? Well, that brings me to assessment question number two to ask yourself. Is my guilt based upon my sin? The reason it's good to ask ourselves this is because sometimes we feel guilty about things we shouldn't feel guilty about. Perhaps you feel guilty that your parents got a divorce. Was that really your fault? Or are you blaming yourself for something that you had no part in? Maybe you feel guilty that your house isn't clean enough. Is that really a sin? Or do you just have too high of expectations for yourself? For me, sometimes I determine that my guilt is not valid. I may feel guilty because I'm not out in the street feeding the poor. But that doesn't mean I'm being disobedient if I'm still being faithful with my time and what I believe God has called me to do. If I'm discipling a brother in Christ or disciplining my children or maybe taking a well-needed Sabbath break from my work, I shouldn't have to feel guilty about not saving the world in a hundred other ways. But sometimes my guilt is quite valid. Maybe I really am being selfish with my time. Perhaps I have been spending too much time on what makes me feel good and not caring about others. Maybe I've been lazy and choosing sleep over prayer. Sometimes my guilt is legitimate. Guilt is not necessarily a bad thing. So when you are feeling guilty and you know the source of it, then you need to determine if the guilt is based upon sin if it's not, and you're simply punishing yourself because that's just how you operate, then please, let yourself relax in the Lord, knowing that he is, he is a good father. He is not a cruel taskmaster. Don't carry around a burden that God is not putting on you. Don't let self-imposed rules cause you this kind of stress. However, however, if the source of your guilt is indeed sin, then we need to continue to question number three, which also brings us to the second point of the sermon. Have I confessed my sin to God? Look at verse five with me. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David felt the heavy hand of God upon him. He had sinned and now felt the heavy burden of his guilt. So what did he do? He confessed. He didn't hide or justify his sin. He humbled himself. He laid down his pride. He freely acknowledged his wrong before the Lord, repenting of his transgression. And what does it say next? Immediately it says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is how we get rid of our guilt. We confess it. We honestly hold up our sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I regret what I have done. Have mercy on me. And if those words are said with genuine conviction, the Lord hears us and freely forgives us all of our sin. All of it. It is completely wiped clean. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And of course, From our passage this week, Psalm 32, 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the remedy for our guilt, confession and forgiveness. All our sin and shame are wiped away by true confession and forgiveness. You hold it no longer. Is this good news to you? I hope so. If this amazing truth that we are forgiven and clean before God doesn't make your heart rejoice, well then something needs to be checked in your heart. See, we talk about forgiveness every week during communion. Not for ritual's sake. Not because it's a good way to fill time in our services. We take communion every week because this is the best news that we have. This is what we're all about. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship restored with God Almighty. If we really understood the significance of that reality, if we really understood what it meant to be right with God Well, let me tell you, we'd be a much happier group of people. We'd be a people more at peace. We'd have more joy each morning waking up. I'm not saying we don't have these things. I'm not saying we aren't joyful, that we aren't a peaceful people. But I am saying that our joy is imperfect because our understanding of God's presence is Is imperfect. But the more we grow in knowing what we have in Christ, the deeper our joy will become. So if you are feeling guilty for your sin, confess it to the Lord. Don't hold on to your pride, don't hold on to your self justification. Confess and repent. He is faithful to forgive. And his forgiveness brings great blessing. That is point number three for us today. Forgiveness brings blessing. Specifically, we're going to quickly look at four blessings for the forgiven that are found in the rest of the chapter. Number one, look with me at verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly... Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. This verse gives us the first blessing for the forgiven. It says that for the godly, for those who pray to God when he can be found, the rush of great waters will not reach him. What is this verse saying exactly? It's kind of an odd one. First of all, what does it mean by a time when you may be found? Well, the time when he may be found is now, today. The Lord can be found today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed a deathbed conversion. It is a blessed thing to be forgiven And we can have that today. So whether you have never come to the Lord for forgiveness, or if you are like David and holding on to your sin, don't delay. Why sit in your guilt any longer? God has promised that if we confess, he hears us. Don't wait. That's foolish. Lay down your pride and turn to the Lord. For one day, it will be too late. I don't know when that day will be, but let's not tempt fate. That day is coming. And what are the great waters that David speaks of? Well, they could be representative of God's divine judgment. As we know, the Lord judged the entire world by water in the great flood of Noah. In the Exodus, the Lord judged the Egyptians by the water of the Red Sea when he brought Moses and the entire people of God through. God brought salvation by the hand of Moses during that time, a type of the Christ to come. But the water was used as judgment. So I don't think it would be out of line to say that the great waters may be a picture of God's divine judgment that will occur at the time when God can no longer be reached. Someday, God's wrath will be poured out on wickedness. I preached on this four weeks ago. This is a good thing because we don't want to live in a world eternally filled with wickedness. But God is gracious, offering his salvation His forgiveness now to whomever shall come for it. It is freely offered. Those who have received forgiveness receive the first blessing of no longer having the judgment of God upon them. Second blessing. Let's look at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here we see that God doesn't just remove our guilt and leave us alone. No, now he is actively for his forgiven children. Verse 7 tells us that God provides us his protection. Now, as perhaps you have noticed in this psalm, David likes to write in triplicates. He gives us three descriptions at the beginning of the chapter for the blessing of being forgiven. He gives three ways in which he felt his guilt, three ways of confessing his sin, and now three ways to say that God provides protection for him. It says, one, God is a hiding place. Two, God preserves him from trouble. And three, God surrounds him with shouts of deliverance. Now hold on here. It says that God preserves him from trouble. We may not know exactly when David wrote this, but we know that David certainly faced a lot of trouble in his day. There was a manhunt for his life, led by his own king for many years of his adult life. He was continually at war, and even his own son began a rebellion against him in which he had to flee the palace and live in the wilderness. That doesn't sound like preserving him from trouble. Likewise, the New Testament martyrs like Stephen or John the Baptist, well, they certainly weren't delivered from their peril. How can we claim that God is our protection when Christians face trouble all the time? Christians are persecuted and killed in many countries in the world still today. How is God their protection? I don't want to spend too long on this question, but to help us, let's look at a case study from the New Testament, Jesus. Jesus? was arrested, wrongly condemned, abandoned, beaten, and finally killed. It would be easy to say that God the Father did not protect his son or preserve him from trouble. But what about when God saved Jesus as a child from King Herod who tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem? What about when Jesus was brought to a cliff to be pushed off but Jesus simply passed through their midst away from the danger? What about all those times the Pharisees sought to kill him sooner but they were evaded from doing so? The point is this. Jesus came to earth for a purpose and God the Father would not let anything happen to him that would hinder that purpose. God the Father completely protected Jesus Christ the Son until it was time for him to die. The same was true for Paul. The same is true for us. God has a purpose for us, and he will protect us for that purpose. God's purpose for Stephen That was to die a murder. But following his death, the church was scattered throughout the entire region, bringing gospel testimony to all new places. It was one of the great unintentional missionary efforts of all time. If God had greater plans for Stephen, he would not have been killed. That is the mindset that we each can have. As forgiven believers. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, for they will be protected by the Lord to complete all their purposes for the Lord. Let's move on. Verses 8 and 9 I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now here, oddly enough, the voice of the psalm changes. It's no longer David speaking as David. It's God speaking. And it says that he will instruct and teach you the way that you should go. This is the third blessing to those who are forgiven. You want to know a secret? This may or may not shock you, but we are really stupid people. I don't just say that for shock value. The other week I was meditating on some things, and this was a small epiphany I had. We are stupid people. We often hear that we are sinful people, and that is true. But part of being sinful is being stupid. See, if I were left to my own devices to live life however I, Marty Lindstrom, wanted, I would do a lot of really stupid things. Sadly, we see this in our culture all the time. Our culture doesn't know what is right. Or wrong. They don't know what is man or woman. Our culture doesn't seem to understand what is life and what is a choice. And with no moral standard, well, it's probably going to get worse. It's ridiculous. But this is the result when humans try to figure out life on their own. We're not very good at that. But the Lord offers this to us. He says he will instruct us and guide us in the way we should go. He shows us what it truly means to live well. Don't overlook this blessing of being forgiven. Don't be like a horse or a mule, as it says in the text. Listen to the Lord's instruction. It is more valuable than we even know. So, the blessings of being forgiven so far. Number one, the blessing of not being under God's judgment. Number two, the blessing of being under God's active protection. Number three, God teaches the forgiven his ways. And finally, the last blessing for the forgiven from this text. We receive God's steadfast love. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Those who have been forgiven, who trust in the Lord, have the steadfast love of God. This truth may sound cliche. You hear it a lot. If you grew up in the church, you probably sang it a lot. Jesus loves me. God loves you. We can hear it so much, it can lose its effect on us. But how amazing is it to be loved by God? How amazing is it that the greatest power in the universe is on your side? That he cares for you? That he gives you hope and a future? That he doesn't hold your sins against you? The full scope of what this means could fill all the sermons for the rest of your life, and I hope they do. Meditate on the love of God. Ponder the Lord's love for you this week and rejoice in it. Verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All these blessings of being forgiven should lead us to rejoice, to sing, to praise the Lord. Our praise of God should be a natural reaction to the glory of being forgiven. So be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. Not right now, that would be really distracting for me. But later today, you can shout for joy because through faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. You are free, truly free. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. For in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. For the Lord will be his protection. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity for the Lord will instruct him in the way that he should go. Blessed are the forgiven, for the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds him. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us rejoice in the Lord this week. And if you are feeling any guilt, If you have that heavy hand of God upon you, then may I plead with you. Confess your sin. Come to the Lord. He freely takes anyone who comes to him in faith. Believe in the Lord and you can be a son and daughter of the Most High King. Let us pray.